Welcome to the Stuck Mike podcast, the podcast created for all pilots new and old. My name is Tim and each episode alongside guests and regulars Davey, Robin and Gary, we will be bringing you honest and open content from inside the world of aviation. Our aim is to create a global community for conversation and support and to tailor the content to you, the listener, over each series. We bring you this podcast remotely as currently we are all grounded due to this pandemic. We sincerely hope that you find interest, support and enjoyment from the content. We aim to cover topics such as Corona, mental health, failure and recruitment in this series as we focus on the world of aviation right now and what we hope the future holds. If you're enjoying this podcast, please like, review and share it as it allows us to create a larger community. Now, on with the podcast. Hello and welcome to the next installment of the Stuck Mike podcast. If you're a first-time listener, as always, we invite you to check out our previous episodes on topics such as Can Corona End Pay to Fly, Back to the Financial Black, Can Pilots Accept Failure, and Raw Data Recruitment. If you are a returning listener, once again, we thank you for joining us and we hope you enjoy today's podcast entitled, What's the Point of Pilot? Together with uh, Davey and Gary, we're going to bring you a slightly different episode this time as you'll mainly be hearing from our guest, who's going to provide an incredible insight into the current and future role of a pilot, and he will discuss how and why this role will change. We're really excited to talk to him, to learn to what he has to share with us. So without further ado, Frederick, welcome. Thank you for joining us. How are you doing? Very well, Tim. Thanks for having me on the podcast. That's great. David? Yeah, good, like always, I'd like to say. For sure, for sure. And Gary? Yeah, I'm great. Thanks. Good. Fifth episode. Let's go. Fantastic. So great, guys. Great to hear. So before we delve in, we always like to invite you to check out our content on Instagram, LinkedIn and Facebook. Please like, share and review it as it allows us to reach a larger audience. First of all, Frederick, would you mind giving us a a brief introduction about you and what you've been working on? Yeah, no problem. Um, So uh, Frederick Borman. um, working in the in the area of, of human factors and, and aviation training, um, a small background in uh, aerospace engineering, operations and safety, and from that moved into the uh, Netherlands Aerospace Center, which is an applied research organization. Um, and I'm working there in the area of, of human factors training and operator performance. And specifically, I'm looking in the area of evidence-based training, competency-based training and assessment in civil flight operations. Um, uh, in that role, I'm uh, supporting, for instance, EASA in um, determining the right regulations of way forward in overseeing these new types of training and also supporting operators in implementing those types of training programs. And um, on the side, I'm um, also finishing my PhD uh, titled Airmanship 2.0, and that's actually circled about exactly this this topic, the new role of the pilot, and, and where that's, this is going in the, uh, in the years to come. And I do a little bit of gliding on the side, so I do get my fair share of flying. But Oh, there we go. Ah, fantastic, friend. That's great. Um, okay, perfect. So, without further ado, I think let's let's get into the first discussion point. And uh, I think it's probably a good idea to start with um, Fred. What do you? How do you see the current pilot role? Well, Tim, if you look at the current pilot role, it's 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 a little bit of a, of a result of an evolution of, of different um, ways of flying the plane. Um, we. We started out, of course, what, over 100 years ago in, in really uh, in the sense of an operator, right? So we'd actually have to be operating everything in the aircraft. And, and then slowly as we evolved, the aircraft got a little more complex and we started introducing uh, procedures. We had, of course, multi-crew cockpit configurations. 
And as automation started introducing, we also reduced that cockpit configuration. We had a more intricate division between automation and, and humans. And what we get now is actually a role this is centered on on prescription oper- prescription based operations. So it's it's fairly it's compliant heavy, it's procedure heavy, um, and um, it's very much structured uh, to 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 get a consistent performance out of a pilot. The pilot role in that sense is is a little bit of a dualistic role. On the one side, we have um, Let's say uh, the, the role of, of being able to comply and to apply, uh, apply procedures on the other side we have this role of also having to think broadly and, and integrate uh, different elements of that system uh, you know so human elements like air traffic control but also technical elements on the aircraft uh, and crew and, and cabin and all that so it's a little bit of a different role and we're actually a little bit of a, at a crossroads right now with respect to that role but i think we'll dig into that a little later yeah fantastic very interesting and would you say that the the, the role of a pilot has developed primarily based on how the aircrafts have developed? Or is that at the point now where that, that is changing, where the aircraft design is overtaking the role of the pilot? Well, at the, at the end of the day, it's not one or the other, of course, the whole system. So the, the, everybody in the aviation system has to work together to, uh, to get some level of performance out of the system, right? So we're flying a lot of aircraft, over large distances at high speeds, and we want to fly economically and at a, at a, at a good cost rate. Uh, and, and so, put that together, yes, the aircraft changes because we're going to make the aircraft more complex and, and, um, and let's say, for example, more efficient, um, which introduces some, some, some complexities in the systems, like let's say the, the flight control systems. Um, and then, of course, the pilot role has to change, or at least the, the, the activities of the pilot changes accordingly. Right? It's always this kind of uh, um, communicating vessel, right? If you change the technology, you have to change the pilot role, and and that's so. Yes, that to some extent to answer your question. If the, if the aircraft changes, the pilot's role changes as well. At the same time, what we also see is that we want to we're moving in this kind of area of consistency to try to keep the pilot role as much as it is as it has been in the last let's say 20, 30 years, not changing too much, and then still get more performance out of the system. Trying to get that from the aircraft. But now you get a situation that increasingly you see that people are flying the aircraft, the, the trade on a need-to-know basis, but the aircraft itself is much more complex than the, than the knowledge and the, the, the abilities that the pilots actually have. Um, and that's kind of a little bit of an issue that we're going to get to uh, at some point. Um, and you see some of those things already coming through uh, in some of the safety investigations. Okay. Perfect. Um, Gary, what what would you define as the, the current pilot role, the role of a pilot? I think um, in any case, the role essentially has been still what it's always been. It's operating an aircraft safely and legally from A to B. How we do that depends on the technology of what you're operating. Whether you're operating a 727 or a 787, your the goal is always the same um obviously the technology has changed but the way i see it is no different i mean look at sea captains and uh, obviously automation has changed and trains for example automation has changed and if you take for example london we've got what we call the 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 london docklands train that's automated it's fully automated it's 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 uh um humanless but there are trains that are still manned. So I think, I, I, still, I, I still think there's a very, very, I mean, the current role is 
as it always has been, even though the technology's changed. Um, it's it, the, the main point is is operating the vessel from A to B legally and safely. Yeah, that's that's certainly a sort of compliance based operation that we live in, and I think that's that's interesting because we we're definitely. Uh, it seems as an, as airlines and as pilots, we're moving more and more to a very rigid structure of controls of um, of compliance and how we operate things. But then it's also interesting because uh, all three of us pilots here, we've been operating the the Dreamliner, which is the first sort of fly by wire type Boeing, and that's where it's also got quite interesting as well. Because I think I don't know what your opinion about what about you, David? Your opinion? Do you think that you know? Uh, as much about the Dreamliner as the previous types you've flown, technically? Um, that's a very simple question. Oh, sorry, a very simple answer, and that is no. Um, I flew the 737 before, and if you would compare the FCOM for both aircraft, the 787 is, there's not a lot of info. It's very basic information in there. And it's just, yeah, this is a system. This is what it does. And it does a lot, lot of things in the background we don't want to talk to you about because probably of liability reasons for legal cases etc uh, the amount of information given is very limited it is enough to safely operate your aircraft of course but you just know when you're flying it a lot of stuff is going on without you knowing that it's going on which is amazing in a case well this is actually a really interesting point um, uh, and i think if you if you were to go back, let's say, um, let's say we go back to the 1970s or something, right? You'd have uh, something that we could call, say, Generation Two Gen, um, the different classifications of the generations. We can go into that in, in a moment, but you know, you'd have a lot less automation, a lot less system integration as well. And actually, knowledgeable, you need to have someone on board that would know all the systems. So there's a reason for a flight engineer, right? We started out without a flight engineer, then we get a flight engineer because we've got so many systems. Someone needs to keep track of all that. Right? And then we've moved ahead and we've actually slowly offloaded this from the human operator into the systems itself. And if you look at, for instance, the A330 fuel management system, right, that's completely autonomous for the most part. Yes, you can you can reconfigure it as a pilot. Usually, if you're flying around, it reconfigures also center of gravity without you knowing and without you monitoring consistently what it's doing. It's very different than switching tanks because one that tank is getting empty and it's something to turn it over, let's say. And the, the fact of the matter is that more often, uh, and this is also because of the pressures on, on training, is that flight group qualification has become has been reduced to a minimum. At the same time, the aircraft is taking over a lot of the, the, the abilities of the aircraft. The problem is that now we could say at some point, this is research that we've been doing at NLR, the pilot is no longer actually completely in control of the entire aircraft. Legally, yes. You know, cognitively, functionally, Maybe not so, right? Is someone able to take over every part of the automated systems at any point in time? And the answer is no. And that's not necessarily an issue, but it becomes an issue because we're actually still expecting the pilot to be able to do so. And that's actually not a fair assumption anymore. And that's the kind of the crossroads that we're getting in right now. And yeah, I've also found that interesting, uh, like Dave as well. I also operated the, the 7.3 before the 7.8. And I've always found it quite interesting, the dynamic that you have um, with the engineers because on the 7.3, uh, the engineers or mechanics would come on board and you could discuss what a problem was and you could look at a solution or look at what they're doing. And now it's, it's so different with the 7.8, they come, they come on board with their laptop and it's gonna take them an hour to come back with what the problem is. And even then sometimes 
they even say we don't know exactly why this is a problem they'll be okay we have this so this system is shut down because of this and you ask why and they they don't even know so it couldn't even have a flight engineer on board to actually give us enough expertise of the, of the actual systems of what's going on which is quite interesting because like we've all said we feel like we have exactly the same role right there's the same role as an operator yet it's actually quite different because now we're following more of the ECAS or ECAM driven aircraft but still there's this lovely chapter at the beginning of every F of every QRH or FCOM which says that the pilots may need to operate outside of the checklist or outside of the known envelope of this aircraft which is a very nice catch-all phrase to say it's still all your responsibility even if you don't understand it. I think um, from what I've heard when I started even flying training sort of 14 years ago um, the term systems operator as opposed to pilot is being used more and more um, yeah that's I mean I, I'd say you're, you know you're 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 less in control well I, can't, I don't say I don't, I don't think you're less in control I, I think the ability to be in control is still important um, because I think there is an element of thinking outside the box that humans have that that technology just doesn't have at this point in time, even with some of the latest stuff. Um, but yeah, we, it's obviously, it's more systems management, systems operations. So what kind of role do you think, Gary, that would be then? I mean, if you're, if you're talking about like a systems operator role, where do you think that, where do you see that going? Um, I think for, the, well, I think for the time being, I think it, I don't think it can go much further at the moment based on where we are with everything going on. I don't think, I think financially as well, when you look at the economical climate, when you look at what's going on, I think everything's getting pulled back. So I don't think much can change at the moment or will be invested to make that change um, because I don't think it needs to change too much. But uh, I think at the moment, you've got at the moment it's a case of um knowing what to do if you need to do it and being there to take control if you need to take control um and having that expertise to do so and yeah, that's interesting as well because we also have with this famous example i think it was um, a virgin a330 was the one who was coming back to gatwick or Heathrow, and uh, they entered a hold over paris and the aircraft would not leave the hold, no matter what they tried. And they spent, I think, an hour or two in the hold trying to get it to leave the hold. And I think in the end, they had to do almost a complete electrical reboot. They happened to be at least over France, which meant they could speak to Airbus and Toulouse and obviously had Saturn always, but it's, it's really interesting in that respect. And I think one of the things we're gonna get onto the, uh, the, probably the next point of this is going to be discussing actually why there has to be some kind of change because um, I think we're always, as pilots or in aviation professionals, we're always a little bit reluctant for change or for uh, involvement in some ways, especially if it may affect our role potentially. And it's interesting to see how um, the, the challenges that we're now facing seem to be only getting greater in this respect. And uh, I think uh, Fred has some nice uh, things to say about that. Well, yeah, just a, just a quick note on that, actually. What's, what's interesting, if you look at this more from a safety perspective, like 
safety investigation, safety science, you see that um, there's a change in the causality, a change in the reasons for accidents and incidents. And what you're seeing is that you're getting this, over the last you know, 40, 50 years, this, this curve of safety, you know, getting better and better and better with also different generations of aircraft. But the problem is that it's flattened. The issue is that that doesn't really, you know, it doesn't, it's not acceptable if that, if that, let's say, accident rate flats out because the amount of traffic is still increasing, right? So the, the annual rate of accidents is going to increase if you don't improve that safety performance. But the problem is that the current strategy that we've delved into for the last 30, 40 years isn't really holding water anymore, right? It's at the end of its value. Uh, and that strategy is essentially um, uh, getting away, uh, removing non-compliance, getting a bit of consistency into the system. Um, and, and, you know, removing concepts like something people call human error. We're going to dive into that a little later as well. Uh, and that's not working. What we're seeing now is that you have a really high level of safety, and then you could say out of nothing, an event occurs, and that's where you see that the system is really brittle. Right? This is the issue. If you, get, if you fly on a really reliable aircraft for a very long time, you're not trained in managing an inconsistent system. So back in the day, if you'd fly a Fokker, a Fokker 50 or a Fokker 70, they'd say almost every flight we'd have something. So you'd always be aware, you'd always be engaged. And now you see that people have an entire career without an engine failure, an actual engine failure, which only goes to say that, well, the reliability has gone so far that the, there's a level of complacency, a level of automati automation complacency that's introduced as well. And so coincidentally, the strategy to improve safety by consistency has actually made our industry really, really brittle because we're not prepared. And that's why you need to have something that's called resilience training. And that's going to be a little bit of the, that, that's the solution that industry is also looking into now. And just going on what Fred was saying, um, again, if we look at previous uh, other vessels or types of vessels, like boats, uh, yachts, um, and trains. Now, trains are a lot more automated than boats. But I, I relate pilots more to sea captains and, and, and sea pilots. Um, and the way, the, way, the reason, you know, they, they, because the way they navigate and the way they operate is, is actually, is, is transposed a little bit into the way pilots in the aviation industry operate. But you have to remember, there's still, we still have sea captains and we still have accidents taking place at sea. And I think when you think about the fact that we fly in three, three different axes, we fly X, Y, and Z. So, so when you look at a train, the train can go backwards and forwards, but they still have operators. When, and and so, so I think when you look at the precedence of all the previous types of vessels being operated, I still think there's always a need for a pilot, just like there's always a need for a sea captain or, or a sea pilot rather, and they always need a train driver at the moment. So I don't see any change in pilot. But that, that's that's again the question, isn't it? Is it because do we we need a pilot now because of how we have designed the aircraft and how we've designed the operations? But perhaps the next generation of aircraft, or probably the generation after that, will be designed in a different way. Perhaps I think uh, Fred showed me yesterday. Like uh, there's an airline in Asia which is contemplating now having single pilot occupancy in the cruise long flights and they're looking at it by 2025 I think which is something that a lot of us uh, don't like the idea of that but also I don't think we would think it would be coming as soon as 2025 already so well, 
Yeah, and if, 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 to give you a few more anecdotes, I mean, the, I think just this week I saw a press release that in the U.S. they did the first uh, autonomous uh, in, in air, uh, air-to-air refueling, right? So the, 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 the tanker was completely autonomous. It was a drone tanker uh, with a piloted jet refueling, um, which was interesting because there was a remark that said, oh, look at this, this fantastic uh, achievement of technology. And then a colleague of mine replied and he said, yeah, we're completely overlooking the fact that we've got a very, very flexible and uh, well-thinking human operator that's still flying the jet and doing a difficult part of this task, right? Which is which is true to some point. So that, that, that's to your point, Gary. I think to some extent you need the operator, but the question is, the technology, the ability of technology isn't limiting us now. I mean, the first, I think, completely autonomous uh, airliner jets already been flown. That that technology has been there for ages. Okay. Great, guys. I think that's really, really interesting to look at the, the current role and how we see it. So I think the next obvious point is to, to ask, what's the solution? What's the way forward? Fred? Well, um, I'd actually be really interested to turn the question around before I actually give my perspective, if that's okay. Sure. Yeah. So maybe it'd be fun to just kind of go around and, and see what you guys think, um, because there's so many different perspectives on that. And, Think it's important to survive the perspective of the operators themselves. So, so maybe just to bounce it back to him. I mean, what do you think the the solution would be? Let's say in the near term. Um, I think it's in the near term. It's, it's quite um, interesting. Uh, it's perhaps even more interesting than in the long term, because I think the long term solution is is more looking at how you redesign the the operation and also perhaps what the operation will look like in the future. In the short term, uh, I find it interesting is why I wanted to do this particular podcast because when I talk to you about this, we start looking at, okay, there are problems now. So now we need solutions for for the next five years. And something we've always discussed about is evidence-based training or competency-based training. And I, I always, I find it interesting to talk to you about it because you will look at it from an academic perspective. And I, have to, and I look at it from an operational perspective. And I think one of the things is that, um, that you have, maybe you have more flexibility in organizations, maybe in regulators, but for pilots and operators, it's slightly more different, difficult because if I look at the way the role may have to change in the next five to 10 years, I think we have to be much more open and honest about everything that's going on in our daily organization the good things and the bad things, um, to get enough evidence and enough data and to actually have some kind of effective training. Because my, my feeling is that the way training works right now, we have, in general, shall we say, in all airlines, it's better in others, worse in others. But we're doing a compliance-based checking system where I think for all of us, the check is kind of the most relaxing day because we know pretty much what's going to happen. It's always the same things. And those are the emergencies and those are the things which we're most comfortable with. Engine failure at V1, we're pretty comfortable with that. It's when you start getting into the training days or the stuff that's not supposed to be testing, but always feels like testing, and you go into multiple system failures where it gets way more complex. And again, that's the type of aircraft we're operating as well. And I think we need to be looking way more into that side of things. So I think uh, it's very easy for people to say that pilot error or human error is becoming increasingly important for uh, fatalities and accidents. 
But I think we need to be working out why that is. And the only way we can do that is to get way more information about it. Interesting. So, I'm just wondering, Dave and Gary, do you guys, do you guys share that opinion? Do you guys think you know, that, that sentiment about like where the training should go to? Yeah, I, I do agree. Um, what also is, an, in my opinion, should be an important thing to look at is the way the aircraft communicates with the pilot, because the, the, the thing that's always said first when something goes wrong is what the beep is the aircraft doing? They just sat there and have no clue. So usually when something out of the order happens, the first 30 seconds, you just sat there like we have no clue what's going on. And that might be this yeah, interaction between man and machine that of course, the more complex it gets, the harder it is because the aircraft can't talk to you more except for like a few call outs from certain systems. But I think that is a, a big thing for the future when things get even more complex. Um, of course, all humans are different, so it's a very hard thing, of course, to implement. But that, that's probably one of the main things that, that will be important for the future. It's like taking time or, or being able to, to think through uh, an occurrence or an event. Um, I don't, don't exactly know. It's more like because, yeah, usually when something happens, at the first 30 seconds you spend like, what is it doing? Because you're trying to figure out what is going on with no clear indication. Of course, not every failure has a clear indication or whatever, if it's something that doesn't happen very frequently, but that's usually the, the thing you see most. You, you just sat there and it's like, what is it doing? And then you see everybody looking up, looking down, looking left, looking right, trying to find out. Yeah, I think, I think that's really interesting because I, uh, I think also it's been a, maybe a transition of experience, but also maybe on types. I found like uh, before you were very almost action ready uh, to, to deal with situations. and moving into a more complex type aircraft, more of an ICAST driven aircraft, I've really had to teach myself over the years and hopefully I can apply this on the line, it hasn't happened very often but also in the simulators, that with these types of aircrafts, uh, when something goes wrong, I almost want to put my hands literally under my legs for a second, give myself just five, six seconds, take a breath and then just look because uh, you know, unless it's something that really means that you have to aviate the aircraft right there and then, it's almost always a problem-solving exercise. So then the more you can try to take a step back for a second and have more of an overview of what's going on, but, and that's where I think it gets very interesting because we're always looking for um, a procedure, right? Because we've been compliant trained. So whenever we get some kind of scenario we're not familiar with, the first thing we want to know during a debriefing is what's the best way we could have dealt with that? And I think that's interesting because the only time we have that question is when we're doing training which is a little bit outside the scope of one checklist. So for example, we, we've all operated in Boeing's when you have, say, multiple system failures. And then for an example, you want to do a landing performance. There is no set procedure of how you do that when you have multiple failures. Operators can train different ways. Boeing have a very clear statement that just says pilot's discretion, basically. And I think we've all been in a scenario where we've done a simulator and then we, um, at the end of it, in a briefing, we're just looking for how do we do it next time so we can do it the best way. And that's interesting because that's where you're seeing more of an issue now. That's where the multiple failures are causing um, uh, more of a problem than, say, an engine failure. Yeah. 
So Gary, what about what about your side? I think it's a lot more simpler than, and, and I know we as pilots will always do it. I think it's a lot more simpler than we've made it out to be, and I think it bows down to the consumer. Who are we selling to? Now, Fred, you said in the last sec, uh, in the last part of this podcast, you you mentioned that we are doing air to air refueling. Well, that's that's fine from a military perspective, but we're not selling to the military sector. We're selling to the commercial sector. So we have to go to the common denominator, which is what are we selling? What is a human prepared to accept? I don't believe a human will accept one or no person in the front of the aircraft any more than they accept um, no one in the front of a, of, of a, a sea vessel. Again, I, I won't speak for trains because I know there are unmanned trains, but... Again, we're working on a slightly more complex uh, navigation uh, perspective, and I think that's that's key there. Um, why are we not flying? Why are human beings, or, or why are non-experienced human beings, operating flying cars today? When you know we thought thirty years ago everyone would be flying a flying car, because I don't. I think there's certain technology that human beings will never be able to accept, um, or never be able to handle, um, and and I think. I think uh, I, I think there's too many. Look at look at what happened with the Pyrenees, with uh, the cra- the the, uh, the crash of one airline into into the mountain because one person had control of the aircraft. I think you need dual control. Um, I think you need redundancy, and um, and I think you need to maintain confidence in who you're selling to. And I I just think any the same as which we need to be limited on things like nuclear power. Because if it ends up in the wrong hands, it can go the wrong way. I think we have to be careful with technology in terms of flying um, and how much we give to one or no person or, or to AI, uh, artificial intelligence. I think, I think it's, it's, we have to maintain confidence in who we're selling to because that's how we make money to carry on that technology. So I think, I think the key is the, cons- the consumer. And I just think there will be a plateau, to be quite honest, purely because of the way human beings are. But do you also think that we're on a plateau with respect to um, uh, what that human is supposed to do? So I think I think if we're going to have a human or not in the cockpit, this is another discussion in and of itself. But if you just look at the operations right now, do you think that there's a there's a change, or are you looking at a change um, in the way that operator or that pilot is is working or should be working in the cockpit? I don't really know how much further we can go. Um... We, we've taken so much out of things like the flight engineer and we've taken we've automated so much yes we can automate a few more things but it's like a mobile phone our mobile phones do almost everything we need it to do now and I, I think the problem is these mobile phone companies are plateauing as well with what they can offer they can make a better camera it can take a higher resolution picture but the uh, but there's only so much more we can we can actually do with a mobile phone I think there's only so much more we can do with an aircraft uh, to, to make, I think it's just more about safety. So I, I think operationally, there won't be much more you can change, apart from may, uh, keeping yourself out of complacency. And again, it's the safety and legality uh, to to be able to sell a safe product for the consumer. Well, you're absolutely right, and I think that's what's what's interesting is to hear all your different inputs actually in in this discussion and. Um, and you know, it'd be weird, but you guys are all right. The thing is, that's the, that's the that's the problem as well. Um, 
if you look at, for instance, the next step in, in, in pilot training, we're talking about safety, we see this complacency happening, like you mentioned, Gary, but then we see this, like this brittleness in the accent, right? So actually we see that we're really prepared for all the, for the, for all the operations that we know and that we're familiar with, we're really well prepared for that. We've taken out the non-compliance problems, but we're not very prepared for when the situation isn't quite the way we designed it. And unfortunately, the systems are so complex at this point that things happen that even the, the engineers didn't think that could happen. That's not necessarily an issue. Yes, it is an issue if we always believe that we can be in control of everything. But the fact of the matter is that the systems get so complex that we will get situations that we couldn't fathom that do occur. And sometimes they're called black swan events. I, I'm not too fond of this term, but it's 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 a way of looking at it. Um, but the problem is, how do we manage that? So how do we actually change the way we operate as a pilot so that we can be more effective in those situations? Because that's where we're going to find that next level of safety. And you're going to actually see in the three areas I think which would be interesting to, to see. Um, one is um, this transition from uh, safety one to safety two mentality, which means that instead of just looking at, oh, what went wrong? Okay, we should learn from that. Of course, that you need to keep that. That's how we've been improving safety for the last hundred years. But we also need to look at something that's called safety two. A lot of safety research on this. And that's looking at, okay, there's also like 99% of the operations that go right. What's happening there? Why does our safe? And more often than not, we find that humans have a natural ability to, to, to recover and to be dynamic in the situation. But it's not reported. If you save the day, like, like Tim said, if, you, if you've got a situation and you do calculate the right runaway length, you might not make a report of that. So it's just part of you know, making that flight, it's keeping that safety. So that's, I think, one thing is to learn from that. And the other two key aspects are uh, training towards competencies instead of tasks, because that prepares you for situations you haven't explicitly trained. So that's something you see in evidence-based training, for instance. The last part, and that's something that's very interesting, is also called startle and surprise training. Because it's precisely when we have long periods of operations that we're not exposed to, un to sort of strange or challenging situations, that once they do happen, we, we get so surprised and we're so, let's say, well, there's a difference between startle and surprise, which you can get into, but you, you're so taken aback that your ability to manage that situation is actually reduced. And that's actually precisely not where you want to be. Like right when you when you get startled, that's when you want to be most pot most uh, have the highest potential to, to act. But the, the the nature of the startle will actually reduce your cognitive ability and your ability to, to to work with your colleague. To be able to recover that is key to be able to to excel and to get that resilience back into the operations. And that that's the thing now. So because what to be clear, what we're specifically talking about now is is the way forward in the next say five to ten years. Um, because we're basically at, say, a, a somewhat of a plateau of technology or automation. And now we're looking at how can we optimize what we have now and also then how to plan maybe for the future in terms of how to construct jets or operations or, or aircraft. And um, I, this is where I think it's, it's really interesting is I also think there's going to have to be a bit of a, a cultural change uh, in, in us because I don't know what you guys think, but I... I heard basically the first thing I was told on joining an airline is the most sacred rule is cover your own ass. That's what we've been told a lot and because it's because it's compliance driven. Everything is compliance driven. But exactly as Fred, Fred says, we don't often deviate from normal compliance on a day-to-day -day operation, but sometimes we do. And as is clearly written in most operations manual, the captain or the, the co-pilots with discussion of the captain can, can deviate outside of the operations at any time that deems necessary. And I think we do do that, 
on a somewhat infrequent basis. But again, what Fred is saying now is that that is the stuff that we don't talk about. And that's the things we don't write reports on necessarily. So how do you get that information on the 99% of the operation that's going well and when pilots are having to be adaptive? And that's where the challenge is going to come because uh, the airlines are going to have to create a safe environment in which we can get the information necessary enough to do evidence-based or competency-based training. Because from, from a pilot perspective, we go in for a simulator every six months. Our aim is to pass the simulator assessment. Of course, we're there for training as well, and we want to do well in the training, but ultimately we're looking at, at passing that assessment and having our line checks and passing those line checks. And at the end of it, like more and more airlines are giving you some kind of competency-based information, shall we say, like, we want to see if you're doing, how you're doing on these ICAO competencies, so then we can see some trends and maybe adapt the training. And that's a sort of interim step. But at the same time, you're not really getting any information. So if you're told in the end of your simulator assessment, you know, you've, you've done your sims and you've, you've passed and they go through the points and they can say you can do this better or this better or this better, fine, we're easy, we can compute that. But what if they tell you then at the end of it, you know, you need to work a little bit on being assertive or, or, or anything of those kind of ICAO competencies. We're not given any training as to how to do that. So how do we make that better for the next six months? So what's interesting is you're, you're, you're framing, um, let's say, a competency-based training program as, let's say, still something that's looked at as an assessment. And yes, there may be a little more training value to it, but we're looking at assessment. And the only thing that's changed is essentially the, the nature, the area of assessment, right? So that means we're now looking at more competencies in a broader you know, pilot competency set as opposed to just narrow criterion-based uh, assessments. But the problem is that if that's the approach on competency-based training, then, they, then, you, then you've missed the point entirely. The interesting thing about competency training is there's a fundamental change in the way that the, the role of the instructor examiner. And one interesting fact is there are actually no examiners. There are only instructors in the EBT program. Yes, there are legally someone that's going to write your license. But in an EBT program, you only have instructors. And the biggest change for that instructor is to see that, that window of opportunity with you to improve your competence. Not to check you, but to improve your, your resilience. And the interesting thing is that to do that, he needs to engage in a very different dialogue with you. If he engages with a dialogue, and that's something that we call facilitation, where he's more interested in seeing, hey, what's, why are you doing things? Right? That's taking a safety tool approach. Right? So as an example, brief example, if you're in a training situation, right, and you're flying an approach, and at one point you miss um, uh, the last few items of a before landing checklist, something like that, uh, and you land in it, say, now that's something that you could note down as an observation. Now previously you would go down for the debriefing and the instructor would sit down and in the debriefing he would tell you, you missed that point, you shouldn't forget. And that's actually classical instruction. The problem is it doesn't have a lot of value for experienced operators. It doesn't have a lot of value at all because you're not learning a lot. And the instructor isn't learning anything either. What's more interesting is a discussion in which he starts investigating. Why did you miss that point? There are different realities. Could be because your workload is too high. It could be because you forgot, you didn't, you weren't familiar with the checklist. It could be that you weren't uh, working well with your colleague. Different competencies, different training needs. And the thing is that if you, if you investigate that, there's a process of understanding of the instructor, which means the training need is much better identified, and that means that he's tackling you, he's training you at a root cause, at, at a root cause level as opposed to superficial level. But the interesting thing is, 
having that dialogue as a trainee, as a recipient of that training, you have to engage. You have to think to yourself, why did I do that? What's happening here? What's the underlying process? And that process of self-reflection is essential in, in this competency-based training because that is the actual learning takeaway that you will apply in the next time because the next time you're going to also have, let's say, a busy situation, let's say, if it's workload management. And you might make the same mistake if you didn't understand that you had to manage your workload. And if you're now saying, okay, wait, you know, it's going to be a busy approach. I'm going to manage my workload at a, you know, it's a different airfield or something like that. Great. I'm going to take that practice forward. And that's called self-reflective practitioners. And that's where you're going to get your safety too. And then you're going to change that culture. And that's also, I think, interesting on something that we discussed on the last podcast as well. Um, I brought forward a proposal that, you know, we look a lot at... Um, uh, now Now there is, since the 14th of March, uh, sorry, uh, February this year, um, the ESA and, and the regulators are trying to push forward, looking more into... Um, the psychological uh, element of the operating a pilot as a pilot, and if you if you look at what we're talking about now, it, it, it's this is all psychological, right? This is all um, the soft skills rather than the hard skills, shall we say? And I also I still think when you if you look at moving into this type of training system, I still think there's a lot of value in having uh, involving even psychologists because once you have a lot of information on training on someone. And you can also see, okay, you're not going to a psychologist because something's wrong. Actually, you're going to improve. So how do you improve these type of things? And if you can integrate that stuff into training, into evidence-based training, you can actually really increase the performance of pilots. Well, this is the fun thing. If you look at training, um, classically, you'd always need a full-flight simulator, right? They'd say, we need motion, we need everything. We need the, the simulator needs to be the actual aircraft, right? And if we do that, then we have really good training. Well, kind of. That's good if you're going to do like whole task training, integrating everything you need to know. The problem is that that's not necessarily the most effective use of your time and your money. Um, if you look at the competency set, for instance, you can have, there's a competency called, for instance, leadership and teamwork, right? And that has much more to do with how you socially relate with your colleague. How do you um, manage the, the environment within the cockpit? Um, if that's an issue, if people have, if a, if a new co-pilot is, 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 is taking a very like inferior position or if a captain isn't engaging his co-pilot not doing good, like setting the scenes before the flight, don't put them in the simulator. And that cockpit is, has, the fact that you have functional overhead has no value pertaining to that training goal right there. And then what's much more interesting is to send them off into the, into the woods, proverbially, uh, and just, you know, let them cut down a tree together or something like that. There are a lot of different exercises that you can do outside of the sim. And you see this evolution now happening with uh, low fidelity sims um, and, and different training exercises that you can put forward uh, and that you can use to develop those competencies. However, this is only possible if the training program and thereby, let's say, the value system of the airline changes to look at competencies. And that's why the change of competencies-based training isn't just, oh, let's change the assessment system. It's it's, it's a much bigger change. Okay, really, really interesting stuff. So let's move on to the, the third point. And I think the next logical step is, we've looked a little bit in the short term. Let's talk about the long-term future. Frederick, uh, tell us about the future with your crystal ball. Oh, man. Yeah, well, let me just get my crystal ball over here and uh, tell you how it's all going to work out. Um, now, if you if you look at the way that the technology is moving, I mean, um, it's it's unavoidable that technology is going to get a greater role in, in the way that, that, that planes will fly. And, and Gary, you made a very valid point about 
you know, public acceptance of, of non, uh, non-piloted uh, aviation. I think at one point, though, the familiarity with um, with autonomous systems, also in driving and with trains, monorails. It's going to start with monorails, right? But it's going to it's going to evolve. Uh, people will become more um, uh, accustomed to it. Um, it's really, I think, a matter of of um, having having an ability to to manage the complexity. So right now and then, what you see is that at this day and age, the systems are still. Um, you could say the systems are still dumb to some extent. They provide information or they can do perform tasks. The level of automation is actually fairly low. The level of autonomy is fairly low. The pilot still has to do a lot of work in the cockpit. Um, and and until that is resolved, you're still going to have a pilot in that in that role. But if you, let's say, fast forward 20 years from now, it's not unthinkable that we're going to have completely autonomous aircraft. You step onto a plane, there's no pilot. It takes off, it lands, um, you know, and, and, and that's it. Uh, there's no, I mean, back in the day you'd actually have a pilot still standing at the door, sometimes they still do, but even now you get onto a plane off and you won't ever know that there's someone actually up front. I mean, you'll know that there was someone there, but you're not going to see him. There's no, that, that contact is gone and that's slowly going to drift as well. But that's really taking up 20 years from now. Why is that so far ahead of us? Because it's not just the technology on the aircraft. That's the stuff. It, it's easy to have an aircraft take off and land autonomously. It's much more difficult for that aircraft to take off to um, to engage with all the other aircraft in the sky, and also that, of course, with ADSB and all that is is, is on its way, um, to navigate through, uh, to land, and then also to manage all the variations of weather and divergences and all that. So it's it's a much bigger change that you need to do in the operations. But that's where we would go to, I think, in the future, um, and and that's uh, it, that's really just a matter of time. Uh, but it's not just a, it's not going to be like on Friday we have pilot operations and on Monday we not we're not suddenly autonomous. There's there's going to be a lot of steps in between. Um, but I think it's it's unavoidable. One of the key developments that you're going to see is that the system will have to manage complexity at some point. So you're going to have to some some sort of, of, of flexibility or adaptivity and a flexible element in your system. And that is now the human, but that could be uh, an AI type element in the future. I mean, the research projects now going on that are looking into, let's say, an AI-driven uh, decision support tool for cockpit uh, in the cockpit. So, if something happens, if there's a complex failure, will be an AI that'll be start that'll start thinking about, hey, what could what could we do now? What are options to help in option generation, to help in risk assessment, to help in integrating different knowledges and providing information that fits with a pilot's um, cognitive framework, mental map, mental mental map of the situation, as opposed to just providing raw information and saying, hey man, good luck, you know, your engine's bust, figure it out. But it's interesting to say, hey, your engine's broken, your range has been reduced to this, your engine's broken, you have an option to restart or you don't, or your engine's broken, um, uh, maybe uh, you should reconfigure your hydraulics like this, right? I mean, there, some of these procedures come through in the ECAM and the ICAS, but that could go much further. Yeah, and even you see it now as well, like, uh, you even have on the ECAM or I guess you have a priority of checklists. So in some sense, there is even already an AI in, in looking at and what yeah, the computer considers the most important. Yes, but consider that if you look at the way the technology is being developed, that that is still something that an engineer somewhere has programmed in based on a set of rules. And everything that's rule-based isn't smart. If it's rule-based, someone still... F- stated this is the rules, the only thing that's changed is instead of you as an operator pushing the switches and, and checking the dials, uh, the system is doing it for you. It's much more interesting when you look at saying, okay, well, it's not, there are no rules, 
that there's a system that can manage a situation for which there are no rules. And that's what you could classically call um, taking in variables of a situation and making sense of that. It's called the process of sense-making. And humans are really good at that. That's why we've evolved as humans. It's a very interesting evolutionary context to that. Uh, the problem is we're not actually leveraging that well enough now. We just talked about that. But if you can replace that ability with technology, that's when you can really start offloading that three-dimensional navigation that Gary's talking about. And you can start offloading that to, uh, to automation. And that's where you see it. I mean, we can talk about trains or ships or cars, but I think perhaps the most um, interesting comparison is perhaps cars, because uh, that is something that has much more of a very fluid set of circumstances to help go on. And you see now these sort of rudimentary AI designs in, in say, Teslas, where you have a self-driving autonomous car, pretty much at this stage, but there is starting to get into discussion of um, uh, if it can sense that there is a person coming across the road, uh, but there are four people in the car, uh, can you train the complexity of the car to decide whether to hit the person or to risk... Um, uh, crashing and killing all four people inside. But again, that's still something that has to have been written by an engineer, as you say, Fred. But I think if you said 20 years ago, will you sit in an autonomous car, the majority of people would say no. Now, if you ask the majority of people, do you want a Tesla? I think the majority of people are going to say yes. So well, that will change. And go forward. I mean, you guys have, you guys are all flight operations. How, what proportion of the flight is being flown by a system, and what proportion are you as a person flying? Yeah, Ninety ten. There you go. The thing is that, and even if you if you do low visibility landings, you'll have you know automatic uh, capture country landings. And the thing is that if that happens, people are on that plane. People are reading the newspaper while that plane is touching down, and they leave there, and they and they're like, okay, yeah, there was a guy up front, but how much was he actually doing? I think that proportion is decreasing. Um, every day and at one point there's going to be a point right like now like doing a single pilot cruise that's going to of course at one point mute into uh, an unpiloted cruise maybe uh, or ground operations but the thing is that if you if you look at that at those steps that people are comfortable with those steps and, and and it's it's people often are very vocal about saying oh i'm not going to accept it i don't but the majority of the people they will accept it uh, and, and that, that's an, that's i don't know if that's fortunate or unfortunate but that's the nature of the game especially if the prices go down. I, I don't know if it's fair to say, I, I know Timmy just said 90-10. I, I don't think that's a fair estimate I th I, because it's not just about flying the plane, it's everything else, checking the fuel, talking to air traffic. There's so much... Not of course, but just, just the physical automation of the, of the aircraft. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. it's not just about when the aircraft's in cruise. I mean, look at... Every, I mean, the most critical stages of flight are takeoff and landing. Look at how much we do when we're taxiing to the runway. Look at the amount of effort we do to calculate that the aircraft can actually get off the ground or get on the ground again. I think there's still so much involved with the pilot that, that there's a big role to play. I really think I, I, it's not just, again, flying the plane is immaterial. It really is immaterial. You know, it, you know we can all do that single engine ILS and, and grease it, but managing and, and doing everything else you need to do. That, that's why you have a multi-crew. I think just technology is, is always improving. It's, it's, it's inevitable. There's always going to be change. And we, we've already got the technology, clearly. I think we've got a problem now because of what's happened with the pandemic and what's ongoing, climate change, 
there's a lot of blows coming for this industry at the moment and in the future. And I think the more those blows take, take, um, take heed, I think it's going to make it very difficult for us to, Im- I- I- to implement that technology. Because look at, I mean, where's Boeing gone? Where's Airbus gone? Where's, where's all these manufacturers gone? No, you can't produce anything because no one's going to buy anything because people aren't traveling at the moment. Um, all these airlines using old 747s still. I'm, I'm going to be flying an old 737. You know, you're still using old aircraft. Um, I think we look at things like you know, Elon Musk working with SpaceX and the ability to fly in space. I think the style in which we operate might change. But I think it's going to be a long time. I think just purely by, because of human psychology. I think it's going to be... I think yeah, we could be looking at hypersonic travel. So pilots could be taught to operate um, in, in, the, uh, in the stratosphere or the mesosphere. Um, but I, 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 I still think there's a, a fundamental requirement for the pilot. Well, it's an interesting example that you give, Gary, about the, the takeoff performance, for instance. So why do we need a pilot to calculate the takeoff performance? Why can't we do that in the system? Why can't we calculate that? We don't have a sensor on that weight on wheels. This is what the weight of the aircraft is. This is where the G is. We can calculate it and off we go. You can. Um, and the mistakes have always come, from, well, not always, but the mistakes generally come from the pilot putting the wrong information in. But that's why you cross-reference with each other. Again, it's a psychological factor. One thing you can't change is human psychology. Um, human beings, like you, want, you know, humans are humans. Um, I, I, you know, I know you, I just think that, you know, yes, you can get a system to calculate something, but someone's always going to want to double check that that makes sense, even if it's a gross error check. And I, I, I still, I, I still think that whilst, whilst uh, a passenger will want won't might might not mind whether they know whether there's someone in the front or not. I would, I I would be very surprised if you said to someone in the back, "Did you know no one's in front anymore? No one's flying the plane?" Because I think there would be a lot of astonishment. I think it's also interesting to to fly an autonomous flight, land it, and then when people get off the plane, then afterwards ask, "How did you experience the flight?" And they're like, "It was a fine flight." But the biggest issue with that, but the, yeah, but the biggest issue with it. that, it might be great the first time, when it, but, but it's always great when it works. The second it doesn't work, it, it will be crucified. It will be completely so, under scrutiny. But if that's the case, why haven't we already crucified aviation because there are accidents in which the human is engaged? Now, I'm not a technologist, so I'm more of a, of a, of a I, I, I fervently defend the role of the pilot in that sense. So I think the human contribution is essential. But I th- to see at the same time that, that, that there is a bridge that's going to be built in the next 20 years. Now, the thing is, if, if a person were to cause an accident, we could make exactly that same argument and we turned it around. And we say, well, wait a minute, if he's caused the accident because he wasn't current or because he, I don't know, he's been off for eight months in, in COVID or whatever, you know, I mean, the different ways in which risk could happen. Do we then write off the pilot? They did crucify it. It was called the 737 MAX. And it got grounded after just a few accidents. And we could have said exactly the same thing. How long was that grounded for? Now, the second something happens, 
everyone's going to lose their, well, everyone, the company's going to lose their money. So the last thing they're going to do is lose more money. Obviously, safety is paramount above that, but the airlines are going to look to where their costs are going. And if they're losing, if, if people don't travel with the airline simply because it's a safety factor, it's a dead duck. But that's, you see, that's the problem, uh, is that uh, I'm going to ask Fred to repeat something he said to me yesterday about this. Is that if you look at how the accident rate is going, and if we're not reactionary with the way of training or with how the aircraft changes, you're going to see more and more accidents. And what was the figure you quoted to me yesterday, Fred? How many uh, accidents per year or something? Oh no! It's if you yeah if you think about um, the accident rate, it, it's yeah, I think someone I don't have the exact numbers, but you could calculate. Take the accident rate now, and if it doesn't change, but let's say the the amount of traffic goes, of course, by three or four, then the number of accidents in a year goes by three or four. So I think someone once said that if we don't change, then by twenty thirty five, you'd have a major accident worldwide every month. Well, that that's a pretty you know big newspaper headline every single month. But that's with the same performance, right? Same safety performance pair, let's say, 100,000 flights or a million flights. Um, but because the number of flights is going up, that the public image of aviation is decreasing. Right? So that's why you need to increase, increase that safety rate because people won't accept that they, that they hear about a major accident every month. They may accept it maybe every six months now, but not every month, which means that you need to improve your, your safety rate um, in proportion to the, the growth of traffic. And that growth of traffic will come. I mean, COVID is a temporary setback, but Globalization is, has manifested, and we're not going back. Um, and that's and that's the that's the way it is. I think it's an important point, though, um, to think about. I think the money aspect is an interesting one, Gary. Um, you, you, if you talk about if you talk about money, if you talk about liability, there's a very very interesting um, uh, snake pit essentially about where do you put the liability of an accident. Right? I mean, you can. It's it's easy to say, oh, the the pilot screwed up, right? Well, there you go. The operator's got a scapegoat. The manufacturer's got a scapegoat. The regulator's got a scapegoat. Because, but we've got an incident, for instance. Of, uh, there are many examples. One interesting example is the Asiana two fourteen aircraft accident in San Francisco. So that was, you know, it's a fairly functional aircraft with a certified crew, and they're crashing on a cavalcade day. Interesting. What does that mean about the way that we're certifying crews and aircraft right now? If we, the fact that we have accidents now is, is only a testament to the fact that we're, unfortunately, you know, we're able to get a lot of safety. We're not, there's still, there's still a mode of accidents, mode of unsafety that's still there. We're not managing it the way with the strategies that we've been doing up till now. And I think that if we continue the path that we will, the, the human operator will unfortunately be, be, be put into a position that we're going to expect things from him or her that he or she can't deliver, and that's, I think, quite unfair. But the thing is that once you say we offload that to the aircraft, now the OEM becomes accountable for the accidents, right? And I think that's, that's, that's a very interesting economic position, uh, economic discussion to, 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 to take a look at. On the other side, I mean, don't, don't underestimate that the industry also moves as a whole. So at one point, you know, if you look at automation, I mean, back in the 80s, the Airbus introduced a different type of, of cockpit philosophy uh, introduced the fly-by-wire Gen 4 type aircraft and now we see slowly that all these aircraft are adopting these technologies everybody is going back to OEM's procedures so there's absolutely a, a wave of standardization and you're going to see this with evidence-based training you're going to see this in valuing human uh, variability as opposed to um, writing it off as human error 
So you're going to see that positive change happening. And I think we're going to slowly see that, for instance, certain systems will become system critical. So you can at one point say that, for instance, your Autofy system will have to be certified against, let's say, a 10 to the minus 15 uh, certification requirement, which is double the accident rate. And then you would say, okay, so then it becomes a critical system. And then you can say, if we can, divide it, if we can design it to that level, then that system now becomes, uh, um, uh, it now becomes a system that's primary and the pilot doesn't need to actually fly the aircraft anymore because the autoflight is, is reliable enough. And then slowly but surely you can see that these systems, that some tasks will shift from the pilot to the automation as it has been doing the last 20, 30 years. But there is a point, that, and that's I think what's interesting, but that's kind of the transition into the future is um, what tasks will transition first and what will transition later. Okay, excellent. Well, Fred, I think you've teased it enough in your last point. So then that leads me to ask the, the, the natural question. How do we get there? What are the steps? Well, if you look at this, you can look at it from two, two perspectives, right? You can start where we are and we can start with where we're going to go to. And let's just take a look at the point of where we are right now. Um, you're going to see a development and the change of the pilot rule. And for instance, the development, the, the adoption of evidence-based training, competence-based training. And that's not just a recurrent training, you're going to see that it's already, of course, in the form of MPL and Abinisho, and then, of course, the time certifications and time qualifications will also be um, conversion courses. Those are also, also going to be competency-based in the next three, four years. Um, and when that entire training pipeline is set up that way, it's a whole different valuation of the pilot. And you're going to see that come back in selection as well. So I think there, the, 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 the concept of resilience and a resilient operator is going to be valued more. And that's, I think, a positive change because what you see now is we've got a brittle operator and we've got a brittle system. We've got a, a rule-based system and a rule-based operator and that doesn't really vibe very well if you've got a, a situation that's not solvable with a rule. Um, so the operator is now being put into this position of having to be more of a flexible element in the system. So that's one step. And I think if you take that further, you're going to get into a, a, a situation that we've just kind of touched on is that, uh, for instance, as an example, if that autofight system does become uh, super reliable, then um, let's say manual flying is going to have a, a smaller, an even smaller role. It might even go away completely. And that you'd just be selecting flight crews based on the way that they can uh, work together, that they can work with a third uh, element in the cockpit, which we can call the, let's say, the automated or autopilot or the automated pilot, essentially. Um, but that's essentially now becoming more of a, a crew member as opposed to a tool that you're working with. And of course, with the external stakeholders like dispatch and APC and other aircraft. And I think it's, you're going to see that transition to there. Going a little further, of course, so one step in that, in that rule can be single pilot operations and then you could have a single pilot operation with support from the ground. Then um, you might have uh, ground operations without anybody in the air. Or maybe ground operations with some support in flight as a maybe intermediate step. But there are already projects that are looking into doing ground, op ground operations, like ground station based um, uh, flight operations. Um, and the reason why is, is I think, uh, comes to another point that Gary made earlier is that you do need to have that human operator to think, to puzzle, to work through situations, to coordinate, yes, and to double check certain things. But you could even put it a little bit tongue-in-cheek as saying maybe this is the return of the flight engineer, right, where you have more of a, of, of a person that can puzzle, so this puzzling ability, this, this level of fluid intelligence is going to be valued much more higher 
than um, the ability to, to, to magnify an aircraft. And then if you go forward, you slowly start that, that some of these systems will start imitating the way as those way those ground operators or, or maybe still in flight air, uh, air crew um, manage situations and that the level of integration between systems becomes gets to the extent that we can then say okay this cannot become autonomous so as an example radio communication between ATC and cockpit is now still done over voice communication for the most part but there's some of course there's some data communication as well if that's completely data-based you know, the, all the all the all the, the 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 RT interactions, the way that that's working, that that's so much is proceduralized that you can you can automate a lot of that. Ninety nine percent of RT is fairly standard, and it's it's only in the non standard situations that really you have to start using the RT to coordinate a little differently. So slowly you see that as those systems start talking to each other, you don't need to have those human operators in between, and that's where you have that's where AI can actually have a chance to do anything useful. Because as long as all those systems are disconnected, there's no the human is still going to be the node, let's say the connection point. So those are a few steps, right? So just to reiterate, you're going to get from you're going to move slowly and putting the operator more in a thinking or, or collaborating problem-solving position. That slowly goes from a flying position to a ground position, and then slowly from there, you can start introducing concepts like AI and Perhaps in 2040 or 2050, you're going to get to a point that it's, that it's completely autonomous. And don't forget, the evolution of the aircraft is changing as well. So it's not just the cockpit configuration, the human machine interfacing, but it's also that we're going to go to electric propulsion or, 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 or hydrogen-based propulsion or space flight. And all these new flight modes, these new, these, let's say, radical aircraft designs will in themselves also introduce completely new ways of flying them. We're not going to necessarily take an old cockpit and then put it into a new aircraft. If the whole aircraft is being redesigned, to some extent you can start saying, okay, let's say everything in space can become autonomous because it's not, it doesn't have to completely integrate with the current uh, operation. So you can, say, set out like a monorail in space, put it as a, as a proverbial link. Frank, can I just, just one question. I was, I, I was in um, just a tiny, tiny story. I was... In going through a bout of watching these, um, and, and I've, I don't know if anyone else, there's a lot of uh, scam calls going, um, and people ringing up trying to get money out of them by saying, so for example, they work for um, the passport office, or you're about to be arrested unless you pay us money, you know, what not, because you haven't paid the right tax. Um, con uh, retrospectively, I watched a couple of these where they're, they're, they were ringing up hackers and the, the hacker was in Russia and the, the, the scammer was in probably in Calcutta. I believe it's in Calcutta. And the Russian hacker hacked this scammer in Calcutta, completely froze him out of his system and, and scared the scammer in the end. Now, if that can happen... What's to stop an unmanned aircraft being hacked and the ground staff, let's say it's being unmanned but controlled on the ground, what's to stop an aircraft being hacked and freezing out someone on the ground from taking any control of that aircraft and the aircraft being flown into, the, into another mountain? That's, that, that's, my, that's my other concern. But what's the, what's the risk of that versus a hijacking or a pilot crashing the aircraft into the ground? They're the same risk. They're a security issue. It's 
It's how you manage that security threat. You have multiple um, redundancy of, you've got two pilots at the moment, um, in most cases. You have the ability to act outside, the, not just think outside the box, but act outside the box. Um, there are ways to, 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 to disconnect that automation and, and do what you, you know, fly manually. Um, now, if you have no way of disconnecting that automation, you, you, you can do whatever you want. And, and with people getting smarter, even the five-year-old, uh, you know, you've got five-year-olds. My nieces were, were using iPads at the age of three to five, you know. You know, coding is not a hard thing to do. So I can't see why, why hacking would be any, any harder. Well, this is the this is the, the general, um, and, and I'm not a technologist, uh, but well, even in our department, we work with a lot of these, you know, these these, these evolutions. What you um, it you, you shouldn't judge future technology against today's standards, right? It's easy to say, okay, well, yeah, a completely autonomous flight right now, with uh, you know the the level of IT security, probably not a good idea, and I probably agree with you on that one. Right? But the thing is that 40 years. Like how long we started internet started like in the mid '90s, so we've been at, we've been doing you know IT based systems or looking at any type of that kind of integration for 20, 25 years, and, and aviation slow to adopt as always. So, so let's say we if we look at 20, 2050, we're looking at like thirty years from now, which is more than the time that we've started out with, and look at where we've come. So I think it's not fair to just to, to make that comparison. I think that you need to take into account that if you're going to have autonomous flight, twenty five to thirty years. I think you're going to have an incredible amount of IT security that's going to evolve probably faster than that of aviation because you're going to see that the level of the security is something that you need throughout the entire um, uh, society levels and all different types of applications and industries. And there's there's so much more need for that that the the, the evolution of that technology is going to go much faster than that of, of autonomous flight within the aviation. So I don't think that's going to be an issue. But and, and you can that's my crystal ball. <laughs> And you, and, you can, and you can see that already. I mean, if you look at um, what SpaceX is doing, if you, I mean, aviation almost almost takes its stuff from NASA, right? From uh, aerospace. If you look at, say, Virgin Galactic right now, the plan is you have um, uh, an aircraft which takes the orbiter up to the higher levels of the stratosphere or ionosphere. And that is manned by a pilot. But as far as I remember, the actual orbiter that goes up with the people, that's not. So, or vice versa, one or the other, I'm not sure which. And so you already have, there's an autonomous element to that already. And then if you look at SpaceX, um, the autonomy level of, of that space shuttles, the ones that took the guys to the ISS recently, compared to the space shuttles that were going up to the ISS 20 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, it's completely different. And so then you look at what uh, NASA, and going back to what Fred said, what, what they're looking at now in terms of how they're selecting pilots, they do a whole year selection process and only one day is your hands-on skills, your hard skills. All the rest of it is your soft skills. And that's talking about the role of a pilot, that, that's the development. And looking at the technology, you have to take that separately because the technology, as, as Fred says, that will increase the security side of it and the risk management, and it's all financial, right? So the incentive 
for tech companies and cybersecurity companies to provide that level of security is so high financially that there's always going to be a battle of that. But normally, there's going to be enough of a risk of security. I mean, you can already say we have that issue right now. I mean, you can already look at the Malaysia flight that disappeared. Uh, was that hacked? Was it hacked remotely? Who knows? It's we don't know those type of things, so we can't we can't judge that future tech on that. And there are also a lot of different ways that you can manage that. I mean, this is this is an aviation podcast and shouldn't be an IT podcast. But if you want to take a small look into that, I mean, if you have a, let's let's just entertain the idea of a completely autonomous flight, right? Um, there are ways in which you can you can check system integrity, right? And if you find out that it's hacked or if the data link is becoming unreliable or something of that nature, you can also have that an autonomous program uh, activates, disconnects, and then there's still this uh, essentially autonomous flight that starts. Uh, deviating to an alternate by itself and then you can have that communicating with ground systems to say look this flight is now going there you can't do anything about it and then you can automatically clear a tunnel in the sky for that aircraft this is the kind of integrations and solutions that you're also going to be looking at um, uh, uh, you know from a, from, from a redundancy perspective but again this is not for the next five years I think it's important to keep in mind though that if you look at these technologies um, it to some extent, you could you could paint the picture to say, oh, it's really scary that you know we don't need pilots in, in 20 years, so ooh, I don't know if this is a career you should jump into. I don't think it's going to go that fast. But I do think what's really important is to think about what is the qualification of a pilot going forward? And that qualification is not no longer, it's not, not going to be necessarily, you know, do I say yes or do I follow a checklist? You know, am I compliant? Uh, can I talk with my colleague? Can I fly the aircraft? Do I have flight skills? Like, you know, getting your PPL isn't, shouldn't necessarily be a prerequisite to getting your ATPL. I think it's much more important to realize that even now already, we need to evolve towards more cognitively centered role and more socially centered role. Um, and there's an interesting study done by someone that looked into uh, investing and uh, looking to um, researching fluid intelligence. Fluid intelligence is the ability to puzzle, to, to bring something together, to see what's happening when you've got different variables going on. Crystalline intelligence is the ability to, to take from your knowledge base and to heuristically connect different concepts, right? So crystalline intelligence is what you have if you've been flying for 65 years, right? Fluid intelligence is what you need to really learn real quick. And they, they, they look at kids playing uh, multiplayer online games, MMORPGs, and then they looked at that and they said, okay, the ability for them to puzzle is phenomenally higher than that of two generations ago because they're working, they're in an environment that is constantly changing because they're constantly different players from different cultural backgrounds playing the game in a different, in a different way, uh, doing things in different ways and the interactions are, are, are every day it's different. And so they're constantly challenging that ability to puzzle and that reinforces them, that, that's an, an incredible reinforcement of that fluid intelligence and I'm going to, I'd say that going forward next 10 years those are the prerequisites. I'm not saying as a pilot you should practice by playing online gaming, but I think it is important to realize that the nature of flying is changing, the nature of the aircraft is changing, and the skills that you need to keep your head on the shoulders is going to change as well. And it's already beginning because operators transitioning to, to EBT type training are, are valuing those competencies explicitly um, and not just putting them into a CRM course. So that's, I think, uh, something to really take forward in the next 10 years. And, probably would be the name of the game for the next 20 years for any human role, I think, in aviation. And I think as well, you, you probably have to look at, um, in terms of moving towards a fully autonomous type flight, it's also probably not going to be um, 
the, the type of aircraft we're flying now. It's probably going to be a completely new designed aircraft and that's going to take a long time to get fully developed and integrated and to become the majority. So no, we're probably not talking 20, 30 years, but 30, 40, 50 years, I think it's quite likely. I don't imagine, you look now, you see that Airbus and Boeing are developed looking at subsonic jets, like we said, uh, Gary, and looking at these different things. And I think they're also now, I don't think there's going to be many more versions of a Boeing 7 something or an Airbus A3 something. I think that's where the change is going to come. And do you have, just out of interest, Fred, do you have an idea of if you were if you were going to design an aircraft for 20, 30, 40 years time, do you have an idea of how the design of that might change? I had an interesting conversation with a, um, within a, not to mention OEM, um, a while back, um, we were having a, it was a European research project, and at one point we we were talking about can we about novel cockpit um, uh, designs and systems, information systems and navigation systems, and de de developing them, testing them with, with pilots. Um, and we came onto the idea that said, well, if the nature of the role, if the role of the pilot is going to change to be less of a manual operator, that's the heritage that we have in the maritime industry, right? But to become more of a problem solver, systems integrator, um, coordinator. <clears throat> and, and if we really say that that's going to be the center of gravity of that role, as opposed to you know, slowly migrating. At one point we say, okay, that's the reason we're going to have a pilot in the cockpit. How do you design the cockpit? And that was interesting to think about, to say, okay, maybe we should have, um, as just a, to coin a, coin a term, like a competency-based cockpit. Can you develop a cockpit that provides information that much more re that's much more readily assimilated by a human? So if we train you to, to think in terms of risk, can we have a risk information system? And if we train you to think in terms of options, can we have an option generation system? Much more than just providing information and, and saying, apply airmanship. I think if you look at it from that perspective, it's much more humble to, 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 to define, to value the operator for what he, he or she can deliver in the cockpit, and then to, to design around that, as opposed to designing the system and expecting the operator to work around the system. The, the age of technologies here, it's, it's, not a, it's not a question if we can design, it's a question if we want to design. I think it's uh, taking that human-centric approach, um, the human asset approach is kind of what I like to coin, um, is really uh, is where I think things are going. The rest of the aircraft will follow suit um, uh, in, that, in that direction, I think. Okay, that's, uh, I think that's really, really uh, fascinating, really interesting uh, topics we discussed today. And I think I'd like to thank everyone for listening to this. And as always, please, uh, like, share, review the podcast if you've enjoyed the experience. Uh, season one is almost completely finished recording, and so we're looking forward to sharing with you the last uh, episodes of that. And if you would like to get in contact with us uh, to, to have suggestions of what you'd like to hear in season two, please do. Otherwise, please stay tuned for the next episode of the Stub Mike podcast. Thank you very much, Fred. You're welcome. Gary? Yeah, it was great. Thank you very much again. Fantastic. And David? Yeah, very nice, very fascinating. Probably why I was so quiet. Just sit there listening to you, Frederick. You got some really, really nice stuff going on. I'm really impressed. Really nice. Fantastic. Thank you very much, everyone. I will see you again soon.